This is Faster, a podcast by Flow Cycling. In each episode, we interview industry experts to educate you, challenge you, and even change the way you train so you become faster. In 2014, while walking down Ali'i Drive at the Ironman World Championships in Kona, Hawaii, I passed a few pros who had oversized pulley wheels on their bikes. A few years later, those same pros had chains that looked like they'd been coated in a white substance. Those same pros were also winning or placing high in the podium. The maker of those products was Ceramic Speed. Today, Paul Solenberger, Ceramic Speed's senior technical and sales educational specialist, will educate us on drivetrain knowledge, bottom bracket and wheel bearings, oversized pulley systems, UFO products, and their new prototype driven drivetrain so that you can gain those same advantages that the pros knew about years ago to become faster. When we're not creating this podcast, we're working on other ways to make you faster. At Flow, we design and manufacture some of the world's fastest cycling wheels that we sell consumer direct to keep more money in your pockets. As a special thank you for listening to Faster, we wanted to offer you 20% off your next purchase. Simply use coupon code PODCAST in all capital letters at checkout. Your purchase will also support our Give Back initiatives. 1% of all sales supports our Bike for a Kid program, where we provide bikes and helmets for kids in need. We also plant one tree for every wheel we ship as a thank you to our planet. Enjoy the show. Hey, Paul, welcome to Faster. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me on. Hey, excellent. Excellent to have you here. Uh, let's start with a little background on yourself. Let's just tell them where you, where you come from and how you got started with ceramic speed, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, um, I've, I've really just been a bike nerd. I was that, that kid who would break his bike and then uh, figure out how to put it back together because my parents weren't going to buy me another one because I broke it. <laughs> uh, but I grew up, yeah, <laughs> riding bikes, uh, actually uh, a lot of cross country, um, down in Texas, single track riding. I grew up racing the local series there all through grade school and in the college days. And uh, bikes have always just been a part of my life. And uh, it, it kind of made a lot of sense. Uh Ceramic Speed was was growing and opened a U.S. office in 2015, and I had the best luck of being in the right space at the right time uh, with a unique background of working on bikes. I had done sales, I'd been a mechanic, uh, so I kind of had that whole blend of technical understanding and communication uh, that fit right into a, a growing company of a, a niche product. Cool. That's awesome. Where in Texas are you from? Uh, North Texas, uh, Dallas region, uh, hone in on Collin County or even McKinney uh, for those that know the area there. But uh, we could just say DFW or North Texas as I kind of lived all over the area, rode, raced, uh, lived, all that area. Nice. So you're rooting for a college football team. Who is it? Oh, man. No, see, I'm a bad sports player. I was a, I was a cyclist. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I mean, you know, growing up in North Texas, you always had the Red River Riot, um, you know, which was the big, uh, big football weekend between UT and OU. Um, I'm Texas through and through. I got a, you know, go Texan tattoo on my leg. So yeah. Um, you know, I got no, no qualms with, uh, with the burnt orange, you know, so. All right. Good, good stuff, man. Good to know. Um, let's get a little background on ceramic speed itself and how it got started and how it made its entry into cycling. Um, yeah. So ceramic speed is, is really unique and we started by setting a world record and then grew to the highest ranks of professional cycling. Uh, so it goes way back. It's a Danish company, um, the late 90s, uh, who became our founder and CEO, Jakob Sismadia. Uh, he was a competitive inline skater. 
uh, very, very European, uh, Scandinavian type hobby to have. Uh, but he, you know, he was, he was pursuing, uh, he's very competitive and he's pursuing a 24 hour record on inline skates. So how far someone could skate if you so chose to do so, uh, in 24 hours. Uh, and there was this hypothetical glass ceiling of nobody could do more than 500 kilometers in 24 hours. Uh, these records were getting into the 480s, 490s. Um, in uh, 98, you know, Jacob himself went, he got 498. And it was like, man, you know, there's this this hypothetical glass ceiling. No one's gone over 500. So he starts digging in and he was actually uh, working for a German bearing company at the time. Uh, he had a very good understanding of the you know, efficiency and the, the engineering and bearings. And so he starts looking at technologies and was actually influenced by NASA of the time in the late 90s. Um, where you know the big science programs and space programs were going really big, and NASA was starting to use this hybrid ceramic bearing technology, ceramic balls with steel races. Uh, it struck a really good balance of durability because of the steel races, so that way you know lateral pressures and stuff wouldn't risk cracking it. Uh, but then you had the you know really high precision that you could gain from a ceramic ball, as round as possible, as smooth as possible, as well as being really dense, so it's not going to wear down. You know, you could have a very smooth round material. But if it's not strong enough, it's not going to hold up. So yep. Jacob actually, you know, went and you know got the raw parts, um, you know, and rebuilt the bearings. And he had at the time they used four wheels on each skate. Each wheel has two bearings, so he had to do sixteen bearings uh, all by hand. Every every ball being measured, making sure everything's as you know as ideal as possible. And the next attempt that he had at the world record, he went five hundred and five kilometers on skates in twenty four no hours. So he's credited the first guy to go over 500 kilometers, uh, the first person to use ceramic bearings, hybrid ceramic bearings and inline skates, uh, and then onward, the first person to bring this hybrid bearing technology into uh, you know, the sports market uh, cycling. So here, here we are, early 2000s, he sets this record, but it's a very niche market. Uh, you know, it's something that's such a tiny market talking to inline skaters, what you know, what, what could be done with this? Um, and being, you know, European, being Scandinavian here, uh, the, everyone rides bikes, even just casually. And uh, it was actually Jakob's dad was a bigger cyclist. And he had the idea like, well, if this worked for the inline skates, would it work for cycling? You know, bigger wheel, you got bottom bracket bearings and all these other bearings on the bike. And so started tinkering with it, local racers using it. And in 2003, actually working with Bjarne Rees and TMCSC, Jacob sent his two summers in a row in 2002 and 2003, building the bearings for the team at the Tour de France. So we went from a world record <laughs> to to building bearings, you know, at the back of the team truck at the Tour de France for these racers. You know, what wheels are they going to use? What bottom bracket? What not? Okay, here you go. Hand, you know, put this together and get those guys any competitive edge. Uh, and that was what, you know, basically put our DNA in place of, hand-built performance, you know, bearings for bicycles at the time. Uh, and we were officially founded in 2004, built off of those early successes of proof of concept and proof in that highest level of competition to to have a valid product. And that's, we've grown it from there. What a cool story, man. I did not know that about you guys. And that's just, uh, that's really cool. And if you think, I guess if you think cycling's a niche market, man, I, inline skating, that's that's a whole other level of finding a niche. So it's good, good, good move to move to cycling. I would say for sure. Um, I guess I first learned about you guys probably back in, I don't know, maybe 2012. And 
I saw one of your demos on bearings and thought it was super cool. And over the years, uh, every year I would go to Kona, I would walk by the pro bikes and I would see, you know, all these additional things. I remember first looking at oversized pulley wheel systems. And then I remember seeing these white chains and I kept asking questions about what it was. And I kept pointing back to you guys. So what I've noticed about you guys is you seem to are, you're like the drivetrain masters. You've completely thought of almost every component of the drivetrain, how to optimize it and how to make people faster uh, using by optimizing their drivetrain. So to get started, let's just talk about drivetrains and what the components of a drivetrain are and and how they consume watts when you're actually pedaling on a bike. Yeah, for sure. So I mean, the easiest way to think about it is the, the drivetrain is what is in between your motor and the, the drive wheel or whatever is causing you to, to be in motion. Uh, so in a bicycle specifically, and where we're focusing here, uh, our drivetrain is going to go basically from the pedals through to the rear wheel. So this is the cranks, which rotate around a bottom bracket. There's a rotating point. Uh, the cranks drive a chain. Uh, so they're pulling that chain around. That's you know at the rear wheel at the cassette. Uh, but for gears, we, we have to have a way for the chain to, to have a different length. And that's where the derailleur comes into play. So you have a spring that pulls back the extra chain length. Uh, and so you have these different aspects in play in the drivetrain. So that way you can push power into your pedal and cause the rear wheel to turn. And with gearing, we can do that at different rates of speed, which gives us a you know a varying drivetrain for all rider speeds and uphill and downhill and everything in between. Awesome. So, if you look at all the different components of the drivetrain, if you had to if you had to change one single component to talk about reducing the consumption of watts, what would that single component be? Oh man, a single component is tough. So you know, I, I immediately I think of two things immediately, um, and I, I think. For, for most riders, uh, the the bottom bracket is that point. So the bottom bracket being where the cranks rotate over at the bottom of the bike there. Um, you know, this is an area yeah. that that can certainly consume a lot of a lot of energy. Uh, it can take watts to, mm -hmm. to turn over. Um, but then it's it's more than just the watts at the bottom bracket. It's the the durability, the reliability. Uh, I I often refer to it as the heart of the bike. You're not going anywhere if your bottom bracket's not doing what it's supposed to do. Everything else is literally behind it in the big scheme of things. Uh, so if the bottom bracket's not performing at a high level, not functioning at a at a good you know level and performance, then you're you know it doesn't matter what else you got going on, you're going to be losing energy and leaving it on the table. Okay, perfect. And so basically a bottom bracket consists of some bearings. And before we get into the specifics on bottom brackets, what is it about a ceramic speed, a speed bearing that makes it different? And how does it reduce the watts um, that are consumed when that bearing itself is spinning? Uh, so, you know, in, inside the bearing, uh, you know, we have a series of balls. They're evenly spaced out, held in place by a cage. Uh, and then the whole you know system here is protected with uh, seals on both sides, so that way you know you want to keep contamination, you want to keep stuff out of it, and you want to let the, the the balls roll smoothly in their raceways, going in this circle, allowing the you know inner you know race there to to be able to rotate while the outer one is fixed in place for stability. Uh, so in a bottom bracket, that yeah. outer race is pressed into a cup, which is held in place in the frame. And then the inner race is what's contacting the crank spindle that you're turning. So you need those to to you know spin evenly, nice stable platform without causing drag. 
keeping you know all the contamination gunk out and keeping the grease inside nice and lubricious and running smoothly okay and so what what is it that makes a ceramic speed bottom bracket unique compared to like something you would get maybe from an oem uh bike build uh, so really it's the attention to detail so the the raw components okay. can often be you know very similar looking um occasionally you have you know deviations in material for ceramic speed all of our bearings are always a hybrid ceramic a ceramic ball with the steel races uh whereas the kind of the industry standard or starting point would just be a steel bearing steel balls and steel races and then we get into you know where that attention to detail really starts to separate itself are the balls all exactly the right size, the same size? Uh, are they all the same roundness? Are they all the same smoothness? Uh, when we talk about being the same size, it, you know, we can say yes to the same size to the blank, blank, blank. Is it uh, to the millimeter? Is it to the tenth of a millimeter? All of our balls are actually measured down to the micron. Uh, so that's 0.001 millimeters. So really getting wow. into the smallest of scale to ensure that, you know, in a, a standard, uh, 61805, it's a you know, traditional Shimano bottom bracket bearing. That bearing there is going to have around 15 balls in it. So you have two bearings for a bottom bracket. So that's 30 balls that all need to be equal in size, equal in shape, having that spherity to it, how round is possible the ball. And that way, on both of those bearings, they're going to spin without any binding, without any pinching, and they're going to be able to roll smoothly. So it's that, that attention to detail. And just as Aon mentioned, Jacob building his bearings for his skates and then for Team CSC. Every ceramic speed bearing is still hand-built, and this is a key piece of that process. We have four sets of hands from start to finish that check the bearings to ensure that they're moving how you expect. And this is this is what you'd expect someone being able to sit there and just move something ever so slightly in the hand and being able to tell, is that on spec, or do I feel a little bit of a rub, or is it a little rough, or is it too loose? All of that gets checked by hand. Wow. So if you compare, like you're saying you're measuring down to the micron level, like 0.001 millimeters. What would a, a competitive or like a, a standard OE bottom bracket, what would the roundness of those balls uh, compare? How would that compare? Uh, so generally, um, you know, what's, what's commonly used. So there's different scales for measuring uh, bearings. You have uh, an ABEX scale, um, which yep. is, you know, going to measure uh, things like general roundness, uh, you know, deviation from a certain metric. Um, and then you're going to have a grade and grade talks about the ball quality. So we use grade three, grade three is the highest and it goes from grade three down to 200. Um, and it talks about how much deviation from a measurement on a certain size, uh, on average, uh, other competitors, ceramic balls, uh, are going to be a grade three or a grade seven. And then uh, we're also going to see steel balls that are either grade seven or grade nine, or in some cases below that. And so now you're talking, you know, a uh, hundredth of a uh, of a, a millimeter instead of a thousandth of a millimeter, uh, or even a tenth of a millimeter deviation. So saying that this ball is three point one, maybe three point one five, maybe three point one zero millimeter diameter. Um, you know, really just you know, it it doesn't allow the bearing, the radial clearance, the amount of movement that occurs yep. between the two races. It doesn't allow, uh, allow that to be held to as tight of a standard when you have you know, a deviation in the ball size that is more than the radial clearance itself would normally call for. So, you know, you're looking, you know, a fairly, you know, small on paper, but big in practicality when you think about how uh, a ring would work in having a few microns or tenths of a millimeter or hundreds of a millimeter set by uh, size deviation on one side 
well, it's also influenced on the other side of the bearing. So when you have you know the circular design, you basically multiply the, any, any imperfections or deviations because you have to account for it on both sides. So getting down to those small, small details, uh, you know, for for reference, a human hair is usually three microns thin, and we're going down to a third of that for our measurement wow, dials. Wow, huh? That's crazy. So we mentioned something. You said that you guys use a what's considered a hybrid bearing, so steel or steel races, and then uh, ceramic balls. So I've heard people in the past have talked about that. They say that they use a pure ceramic bearing. Is that actually a thing, or is that just some misconception? Uh, no, certainly, certainly things that exist and have their place in the market. Um, on a bicycle, the pulleys would be one area that you feasibly could use a full ceramic bearing um, without many of the risks that are currently in place. So, what, what we're talking about the risks that occur with this full ceramic bearing. Um, you know, think about you know your, your ceramic mugs or cups or plates or whatnot. Uh, you know, it's it, it's not a solid material um, as far as you know being right. something like steel, and it has a, a brittleness to it. So it can be very dense okay. and very hard, uh, but it doesn't take shock load very well. So we think about the shock load that passes through a bicycle for the hubs, you know, hub bearings or the headset uh, when you hit a bump on the road. The the absolute worst thing in the world would be if one of your bearing races fractured at mm -hmm. that point. Because now a sealed system that needs to rotate, uh, you know, the train is off the track, so to say. So yeah. in a in a bicycle and any you know any situation where you have an interference fit, a press fit interface um, that has a you know relatively large tolerance range, um, talking you know tenth or hundredths of a millimeter in, uh, in difference in in how the size of the bearing and the size of the bore and the hub or something would be. Yeah, when you have those differences. That is not an ideal situation for a full ceramic bearing because you could put too much load on that outer race and just crack it from installation. So it's very one thing to me is very surprising is the the amount of squeeze that there can be on steel and and still maintain its integrity and its strength. And we see that when we're pressing in bottom brackets or hub bearings that they they need to be a nice snug fit. Otherwise, you get the noise issues or you get poor fitment that things are going to move around. So that, that tight fitment in conjunction with the potential for shock loading is where a hybrid ceramic bearing is a more ideal solution rather than a full ceramic bearing. Wow. I didn't know that. So in theory, you actually want to, in most cases, you're going to want to steel race with a, with a ceramic bearing. That's, that's good to know. So considering all these um, attention to detail that you've, that you mentioned in being hand built, how much of an advantage does this ceramic speed bottom bracket give you compared to like a standard OE bottom bracket? So we approach this again with, uh, with, with two, two key pieces. Uh, when we talk advantage, talking, you know, just specifically efficiency, uh, you know, bottom bracket itself can consume, uh, you know, anywhere from one and a half to three and a half watts in, in an ideal scenario. So properly set up, not over, overly preloaded, not all dirty and grimy. Um, but one of the big differences over time becomes, does that bottom bracket hold up? You know, is it deteriorating? Yeah. So if you then take a, you know, a steel bottom bracket that became contaminated, got a little, you know, uh, a little salt in there from sweat, a little moisture contamination, whatnot that occurs, you know, moving parts sliding around, uh, you can see that one and a half to three and a half to be going up to four or five watts. When you get dirty grease, that's super slow. You get the steel that's degrading. Now you have rough objects rotating around. It's not going to roll as smoothly or as efficiently as a smooth object. So not just in the ideal condition lab scenario, but then over time when you, you know, implement 
real world conditions, the durability that we see in a ceramic speed bottom bracket being properly built using the highest quality materials allows it to maintain that high efficiency throughout the life of it. Whereas you service it like an oil change on the automobile rather than the bearing breaking in quickly and then breaking down as we see with the more low cost solution of a steel on steel bottom bracket. Okay. So when you look at a service schedule for this, what is your recommendation on services based on, I mean, I know a car has like, if there's a time factor or there's a distance factor, is it simply a distance factor with a, with a bottom bracket? And what is that? Um, so it, it's very similar to, to how we approach with the car, and I relate it quite often to an oil change on an automobile to, to end users that are experiencing this as a first-time need from, uh, from the previous bottom bracket they may have used that didn't need uh, to have a service interval. So what we approach, I, you know, I really encourage all riders, at a minimum, a twice-a-year service, just because you know over time with heat, with uh, temperature change and humidity, the, the grease does start to, to change. So just as a preventative maintenance of twice a year is kind of that base level. But for, you know, are communicated on distance, riders that are riding more, it's three to 5,000 miles depending on ride condition. If it's clean, if it's, uh, you know, you're not in a coastal region with a lot of salinity in the air and humidity, um, you know, just kind of Riding in nice weather days, yeah, you can get more than you know five thousand miles between service intervals, no problem. If you're riding somewhere in a coastal region, if you're riding, you know, cyclocross conditions, you know, getting out there really hammering the stuff, moving that needle over towards three thousand miles. And again, it's all about just kind of that preventative. If you're riding a performance product, you want to take care of it, you want to allow it to do its best job, and in doing so, keep the contamination, keep the crud out of there. You know, right now bikes don't have a service light that pops on when it starts to run rough. Um, you know, so you, you got to stay ahead of it rather than waiting for the noise, waiting for the issues to pop up. Because generally, the engine starts smoking, there's already a problem. <laughs> yeah, that definitely is true. So when when do you know it's time to actually replace a bottom bracket if you're using a ceramic speed bottom bracket? Does it have a certain duration? Does it need to be replaced or can you rebuild it? Uh, I mean, in, in a vast majority of cases, we see it as just a service and continued use. Um, you know, many riders will, will be alerted to an issue if they, you know, they turn the cranks over, they're washing the bike, lubing the chain, something or turning the cranks over, and you can feel in the hand that it's just not smooth. Maybe you're starting to feel some vibration or something in there. Um, or you start to hear something, you know, starting to, you know, it sounds like it's making noise. Carbon bikes are excellent at reverberating noises, uh, for better or worse, they are. So, so are wheels. <laughs> yep. There we go. Yep. Yep. Nice uh, audio uh, amplifying uh, effects in these materials. So, um, you know, what, what we see is, you know, if I can keep people on the front edge of that service, there's not an end of life. Uh, the, the balls themselves, the races themselves are tested for hundreds of thousands of kilometers. Uh, we have our own internal test rigs um, with and without uh, outside influence, whether it's contamination, you know, uh, trying to replicate different, you know, scenarios that this product would go through in the real world. Um, and in, in you know, general use, uh, not just lab conditions, but in general use, we don't see a, a standardized end of life expectation because the products will hold up. Uh, one of our other uh, company uh, focuses, uh, how the company is set up, we have a couple of different uh, sub companies. We have a company that focuses just on industrial application. And this is, you know, machinery and equipment that, you know, uses higher RPMs or higher heat or worse conditions or all of the above than anything a bike industry would see. Um, so we have good experience that we can cross over back and forth looking at how this stuff lasts. And we can see a lot higher weight, a lot higher RPM usage, uh, you know, 
uh, calculated out to what would be a lot more kilometers uh, through our industrial applications. And so we were very confident in how long the materials themselves last. It's how we manage the environmental impacts over time. Cool. Awesome. Let's uh, scoot over to wheel bearings. And I know a lot of the stuff is probably going to be very similar. Are there any key differences that you see from a bottom bracket bearing to a wheel bearing? Um, you know, I mean, the biggest thing with the wheel bearings uh, is that you actually end up with a bit more diversity in the approach. So with a bottom bracket, uh, earlier we mentioned radial clearance, the amount of movement between inner and outer races, you know, scheduled by how big the ball is filling up the space. Um, we control effectively all the aspects with the bottom bracket. We're, we're putting it in a cup or we know that it's going to press directly into a frame and we know what the expectation of the crank spindle going through. So we can you know, very consistently build a radial clearance and just have a broad application. Wheel bearings, on the other hand, will, will be a lot more uh, you know, case specific. So depending on how the hub is set up uh, with or without preload adjustments, um, you know, how, how the dust covers are arranged, what, what the hub drawing tolerances are, that will tell us, you know, which direction to go for building that bearing. Um, and, you know, occasionally we'll, we'll get the feedback if we have our standard, our, our CN clearance, just the standardized clearance. Uh, we send that out, you know, someone maybe says, yeah, this feels a little tight. Or someone goes, you know, man, this, uh, you know, has a little bit of play in the hub. We can actually just, okay, we're going to build the bearing with a different size ball to accommodate that scenario. So when we know these measurements and that kind of stuff, that's when we get into our brand specific wheel kits that we offer. That'll be for specific brands, um, whether it's flow or a different brand, you know, we get in there and know exactly where these clearances need to be. That gives us the best case scenario. You know, we know they're going to plug in and do what we expect them to do. Awesome. Do you see any specific advantages with a specific bearing size? So I know, you know, there's all different types. You can get 6,900 size bearing, 6,902, 6,802. There's multiple different things. Have you done any testing or do you have any information on optimal bearing sizes for wheels? You know, so there's definitely a range, you know, um, part of it's going to depend on how many balls are in there. And the other part's going to depend on how large the ball is. Um, there's some brands that use uh, like a 61701, 61702. And that's a bearing using a really small ball. Uh, the smaller the ball, the smaller the contact point, and the faster that ball has to move. Because uh, if we really think about it, regardless of how big the bearing is, the, the axle staying stationary on the bike, and then the wheel is, you know, 26, 27 and a half, 29, 700C, whatever, you know, standardized road, you know, just general cycling wheels. So we have an idea of how fast that ball has to rotate to move around the inner race. So by increasing the ball size up, you know, be above two millimeters, getting into a three to six millimeter size ball, then you're talking, okay, this ball can rotate slower. It has more contact area. It's going to be more impervious to contamination. It's not going to be rolling as fast, which automatically means that it doesn't consume as much energy. Uh, it's not going to generate as much heat. So, you know, getting into a nice happy medium size, uh, we're, we're seeing this already kind of uh, cause and effect of disc brakes by having larger axles with through axles and stuff. So the, the bearings are kind of naturally getting bigger. Um, we're, we're really seeing yep. the most popular bearings that we produce and sell 
shift into this range of 6902, 6903, uh, 6803s, you know, really honing in on some popular ones and even some some new custom designated sizes, uh, 15267s as a common one or 17287, which are built around 15 and 17 mil ID wheels, which are common for disc brakes now. Well, that's, that's really good to know. We've, we've always used a, a combination. Uh, we use 6900s on the front and we use 6902s on the back. We did have uh, a couple versions with 6802s, but we've moved back to a 6902 in the rear, a little larger, a little more substantial bearing. And I, I actually really like that size. So that's, uh, that's good. It's good to know. Um, as far as service for wheel bearings, is it similar to your bottom bracket? Very much so. Yep. Yeah. Um, you know, this is a nice, easy one that unless you have race wheels and training wheels, then, you know, we can feel pretty confident that your wheels are going through the same, uh, uh, same environmental impacts as the bottom bracket is. Um, you know, you have slight differences as far as well, your body sweat, things that are going to run down the bike, those are going to get to the uh, bottom bracket and it's not getting to the wheels, but the wheels are constantly turning faster. And so when you have a faster movement, uh, that's going to soften the grease a little bit more. Um, that will influence the grease's overall lifespan a little bit more. And our approach, really, we we use grease that that does have a lubricative effect. Uh, we want something lubricious that's going to have smooth surfaces. Uh, but separate yeah. from that, what we want to see is a nice product that makes a wet seal. So basically, you know, a, a, a wet sealing that occurs between the inner race that's moving. And the outer uh, seal, which is connected to the outer race, and that is uh, stationary. Um, uh, in I guess inverse for bo- for hubs, but uh, you know the inner race moves for a bottom bracket. So on a hub, the the inner race is fixed to the axle that's stationary as you're rolling down the road, and then the outer race and yep. the seal are now going to be rotating around that. Uh, so when you have that movement, you know you can have a very heavy seal that you know gives a better you know better sealing from outside contaminants but that's also going to create more drag so striking the balance we go for a light contact seal that's going to keep the majority of contamination out and then to you know get that little barrier in between that's where we want to use the you know a nice uh thin grease that's going to hold its shape and still be firm not too thin not oily like uh and that really keeps you know the moisture and stuff from getting in between that little edge between the race and the seal cool that's that's pretty cool. So when you do a rear wheel rebuild, you have typically two bearings that are on the axle, which get most of your use, and then you have two, or depends on the the hub design, but two other bearings that are in the free hub. So those engage when when you are freewheeling. Do you recommend changing those bearings as well? So when we approach a wheel kit, we do include. Pardon me. Uh, when we approach a wheel kit, we do include a full, you know, arrangement of the bearings, and that would include front, rear hub, and the free hub body. Uh, and this yep. is purely, you know, when we're looking at the efficiency, longevity, the durability aspects of all the system together. If you're turning the cranks, then the free hub body is being turned, which is turning the bearings in the free hub body. So when it really counts that you're putting power into the bike. Any bearing that's turning, we want to give the best opportunity to be as efficient as possible, and we will include free hub body bearings in that. I do occasionally get uh, you know shops that are like, oh, we're just going to do the hub body bearings. You know, that's all that we're really worried about, and it's you know it's kind of a eighty percent of the way there. So yes, those are the bearings that are carrying the rider load. Those are the bearings that when they deteriorate, you'll have a bigger impact on efficiency because now you have the rough bearing or the rough race occurring under the body load. Um, if your bike's moving, those bearings are engaged. But if you're putting power into the pedals, you know, I always tell people if you're pushing it into the shoe. Don't you want as much of it to get to the tire as possible? 
Yeah, yes, we definitely do. That's we want to conserve every watt we can. That's uh, that is definitely true. So, from a if you were to redo a complete wheel set, uh, we talked about the bottom bracket. We're looking at you know a few watts there. What would you say for a wheel set? How many watts would we consume over like a standard OE bearing to a ceramic speed bearing? Certainly, yeah. So this is this is where it gets a little bit more interesting because we start to play into some different metrics of you know, wheel bearings are going to be dependent directly on speed. So uh, you know, cranks, you may know, pedal faster, pedal slower, um, but different gearing, it's not directly related to speed. So on wheels, on the other hand, when it, when you go faster, the bearings have to spin faster, um, and you will start to see you know that that value of a smooth rolling bearing continue to increase as you go up. Uh, you can be anywhere from a quarter watt per bearing. And so we think we, have, we got four main drive bearings. Well, that's already up to two watts of difference at a quarter, uh, sorry, one watt of difference at a quarter watt per bearing. Uh, and we can see that measurement get up over a full watt per bearing uh, if it's got heavy seals to try to, you know, uh, you know, engineer some extra life into it through uh, through a direct manner, or if it's got really heavy grease, um, or if it's packed with grease, we 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 communicate a fill rate rather than packing bearings because a ceramic bearing doesn't have to be completely enclosed in grease to perform at a high level. We just want to protect it from contamination. So using a heavy, thick grease to try to get more longevity out of it, uh, you know, it's just a, another way to solve it, but it doesn't help efficiency. So you start talking over a watt per bearing. Now that's four watts for the four main bearings rolling in your drivetrain uh, under body load. Uh, and this, you know, again, you add that to, you know, a two watt ish increase in the bottom bracket. Now we're at six watts, uh, you know, when you're riding 95 RPM, um, you know, around 200, 250 watts input. So that starts making uh, notable impacts for many, many riders. Well, I like where this is going. We're uh, we're building up to our final question, the watt point question, but we're doing some math along the way. So it's pretty cool. All right, let's talk about oversized pulley wheel systems. First, can you just talk about the purpose of the pulley wheel system and what it does on the bike? Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm going to give a shout out, not my namesake, but uh, I, I will just go ahead and adopt him as my namesake, uh, Paul de Vivi. This was a, a French <laughs> cyclist uh, back in the early 1900s. Uh, he's credited with, with coming up with this wonky design. Uh, that we still use today. So it wasn't; it's not a direct, uh, uh, direct influence here. But he's the one who decided to use a spring-loaded pulley to take up the extra chain slack that is needed to allow your chain to accommodate different tooth counts. So you know, you have your front chain ring, you have your rear chain ring. As they move bigger and smaller, more teeth means it needs more chain length. Less, che- less teeth needs less chain length. So uh, a modern bicycle uses a parallelogram, a dual parallelogram design with a backward spring that will take up that spring, t- that chain tension. Uh, it'll take up that extra chain length. So as you go into those bigger cogs, that's the spring is going to be pulled forward. It's going to allow more chain to go around the chain rings and the cogs. Um, and then as you go down to the smaller ones, smaller chain ring or smaller cogs, that spring pulls that chain back, pulls that pulley back and, you know, kind of takes it out of the way. So a derailleur's job there uh, is twofold. One, to align the chain with the given gear that you want it to be in. And in the case of a rear derailleur, the job there is to take up or release the different slack, the different amount of chain needed to accommodate the range of gears that you're using. It is a very clever design. When you actually sit down and look at it and see how it operates and how it keeps that tension on the chain and keeps it from being slack or too tight, it's actually really, uh, really clever. So. That's uh, thanks for that that uh, explanation. That's it's very it's so clever that uh, actually it was uh, SR Suntour had a patent that when the the, the patent ran out, 
Um, it's actually what we now see as the dual dual parallelogram derailleur been around, been in place since I believe it's the early 70s uh, that all major manufacturers use. So that design was limited to one brand. Uh, and then when they ran out of their patent time and it opened up, it's basically it's the de facto standard. It's no one's come up with a different way to accommodate chain length and get a wide range of gears uh, that does it as effectively, as simplistically, and as directly as that dual parallelogram design. Do you know what people were using before the patent had expired that were making other drivetrains? Um, you know, so this is where you got some uh, some linear actuation. Um, you know, the the lower pulley going just further downward trying to take up the slack. Uh, if you look at some of the early Campanola derailers, uh, we can still say that they're beautiful and that they were elegant and they executed design. The problem was the range. Derailers were always going to be limited by how much range they could take up, uh, moving that, uh, you know, the, the pulley just vertically up and down to, to accommodate different chain length. Um, and so, you know, being able to move that pulley, not just up and down to follow the, you know, the height of the cassette, um, but also, you know, bringing it backwards with the lower pulley to to take up that chain, uh, you know, really changed the ball game and you know mixed up the way it went. Uh, and one thing I can I could go way back and you know even say in, in relation to the oversized pulley wheels that you, you mentioned here, we're going into from when Paul de Vivi did the first pulleys, they were round little discs. Those round little discs over time, they put teeth on to help the chain hold them a little bit better, and they've all been around eleven teeth for almost eighty years. And it just happened to be the size to to accommodate a need. It was a, an ends to a you know to to a problem to say okay we just need to take this up, but no one really went back to the drawing board to specifically question why the pulleys were that size, what was the function, and was there a better way to do it? Uh, and that's something we spent a lot of time studying. Okay, so let's talk about that because the first time you see one of these oversized pulley wheel systems, it's kind of you notice it. I noticed it right away. It's something that you see, you know, ever since I've been a kid, you see, like you say, every um, pulley wheel system has like 11 teeth. They all look the same. And then all of a sudden there's these big giant wheels, jockey wheels that sit on there. So that's one thing that makes the, obviously your system unique, but what is the advantage of an oversized pulley wheel system? And what did you find when you were studying it? So we will we'll be totally fair that we didn't create the concept. Um, it was actually a German father and son uh, burner um, that that had this original concept, and I think they were you know really ahead of their time thinking about the influence of efficiency and a chain itself. Um, a chain is one of the least efficient pieces of an entire drivetrain, but the the whole concept here is a chain is really good in a straight line. It can transfer load really well. It's when it has to do something else that it then consumes energy. So a modern bicycle chain, you got a little roller on the inside, you got four chain plates, two inner plates going one way, two outer plates going the other way, and just rinse and repeat, you know, the whole cycle. And so it's these plates that when they have to, you know, rotate when a chain bends, you just have metal on metal. And it's one of the reasons we have chain lubricants and such to allow the chain to bend a little easier, uh, but it still consumes a fair amount of energy. We're talking north of 10 watts can be lost into a, you know, a poor chain lubricant. So in really? that chain, yep, yeah, it's, it gets real big. And there, there's ways, you know, multiple ways to, to dive into it, whether you want to focus on lubricants and trying to make it as, you know, lubricious as possible, make things slide as easy as possible. But what's better than just trying to make it do its job better is is having it do less less work. 
which is it doesn't have to bend as far. So uh, at 95 RPMs, again, a normal bicycle drivetrain, this is a fairly constant, and we measure a lot of things at 95 RPMs, a nice happy middle, medium ground, a common uh, RPM for pedaling that many riders uh, can easily achieve. Um, when the chain has to you know, go through, you have a chain coming onto the front chain ring, and then it comes off the front chain ring. So that's two points of articulation. It goes from a straight line to bend around a chain ring, and then when it comes off the chain ring, it goes back to a straight line. Well, now we have to do that in and out of both pulleys, so two pulleys, that's four more articulation points. And then you also have around the cassette, so entering and exiting the cassette. So it's a total of eight articulation points in a normal drivetrain, 95 RPMs. You're talking well over 40,000 articulation points a minute. Just moving, a little bit of movement, a little bit of movement. So if you can make any of those little points, and with the OSPW, the oversized pulley, the big pulley wheels, so that's half of those points. If you can control half of those and make them do less work, well, out of 40,000 articulations a minute, 20,000 of those are doing less work. They're consuming less energy. And we can see that to the tune of two to four plus watts when you're looking at a traditional drivetrain going from 11 tooth, 11 tooth to you know a 15, 19 or a 17, 17 pulley wheel size. So it can definitely, again, continue to add up. So bigger pulley wheel, the chain doesn't have to bend as much when it comes onto and leaves the pulley and allows it to move through that derailleur system easier. Okay. Well, that, I mean, that's, that's, I mean, you, you do the math and you see 40,000 articulation points in a minute. I mean, I, I guess I, if somebody said how many articulation points are in a chain in a minute, I wouldn't have thought that, but like you say, like you do the, you do the math and it definitely works out. So that if you can cut that in half, that is, that is significant. I guess that begs the question, why did you settle on the size that you settled on? Why not go bigger? Is it is it a size issue or is it was there a, a specific mechanical reason you decided not to go larger? Um, so, you know, twofold. Uh, one's a bit of the practicality of it, of we only have so much space within, you know, standard derailleur designs. Um, all the systems that we're working with are, you know, they're fitting onto dual parallel parallelogram derailleurs. So what the common derailleurs are used out there, uh, how much range we have and the length of chains. So uh, for better or worse, uh, you know, chains effectively all come about the same length, kind of a, you know, a, a predetermined length that is expected to fit a vast majority of bicycles, regardless of chain ring size. And if you're running a long cage, you know, wide range rear derailleur or anything like that. So we got, you know, 114, no 116 chain lengths to work with, um, you know, competitive riders riding a 53, 54, maybe even a 55 tooth chain ring. So we, we kind of have this, you know, loosely set parameter that's already going to be in place um, to keep riders from having to splice chains together or whatnot. But then there's also yeah. the, the mathematical practicality in, we're, we're talking about degrees of rotation on the chain itself. And when you go from, uh, you know, there's a 10 tooth cog on some of the cassettes now and these 11 tooth pulleys, well, 11 tooth to a 12 tooth to a 13 tooth, that makes a pretty significant impact very quickly. But then as you go 15, 16, 17, 18, 19 and onward, each additional tooth is a smaller percentage increase, which means it's yep. fewer degrees difference on the actual uh, you know, chain itself. So um, once you get between 17 and 19, it really, really starts to drop off that you would need to go from 19 to 25 to 35 and 50. You know, the jumps get to get real big to see any kind of a measurable impact difference. So 
fitting you know within uh, a height and a chain link so a height from the cassette to the bottom of the pulley system make sure you're not going to be too close to the ground or anything like that and yeah. then the the overall length of the chain that's kind of what sets the parameters and we know that you know bigger than 1919 there's going to be arguably no measurable impact that would fit. Um, so we've had, you know, 1717 on a couple of the systems, uh, 1319, 1418, and 1519 are the sizes we currently support. Cool. And I'm guessing you have ceramic bearings in your pulley wheels. Oh, yeah. So okay. it, it was, um, we, we, we basically double the efficiency savings when we go from standard size pulleys uh, and then standard size pulleys with ceramic speed bearings and then the ceramic speed oversized system. Uh, you're, you know, increasing that efficiency or cutting the drag uh, by half uh, on each of those steps. Yeah, I was going to say an 11 tooth versus, you know, your the number of teeth that you have and then the bearing that that is a huge difference in the number of rotations and just the efficiency. So, yeah, that's that makes total sense. All right. So let's move over to your UFO products. I think it was a couple of years ago. The first time I saw one of these, it's I called them dope chains. I don't know what uh, I think that's kind of the, the slang term for them. Um, you're mentioning how chains are one of the, you know, you're talking 10 watts in a bad chain. Can you talk about your UFO product and how that came to be and just explain it to the listeners so they even understand what it is? Certainly, yeah. Uh, and this is a, a wildly exploding category uh, in the, the bike nerd realm and anybody that's looking for efficiency. Um, so uh, to start with, UFO uh, stands for Ultra Fast Optimization. Uh, this okay. was something that was actually started um, mid 2000s uh, by Jason Smith of Friction Facts. So uh, Jason was a bit of a bike nerd and still is, um, and he he did triathlon kind of casually. He's got you know got a family, a couple kids, the dog, the whole work. So he gets to occasionally do triathlon, and he wanted to make sure that when he went out and he was taking care of his bike. Uh, that you know he was making the smartest choices possible so that way he could maximize his effort. So he's not going to be winning races, but he was smart enough to know that if he made bad equipment decisions, it's going to hinder him unnecessarily. So he asked the local bike shop dudes, uh, local bike shop dudes here in Colorado, and the the answers were were basically like, you know, what's your favorite soda? He wasn't getting any, you know, real, you know, data-driven, you know, help on what is the best lubricant? You know, I want to make sure I'm using a smart lubricant. He was aware that, you know, the chain would consume energy. You lubricate it to make it, you know, not consume as much energy. Well, which one's best? And it was basically, well, I like this one because it smells good. Or I use this one because <laughs> this guy developed it. Um, there was no data. And so, you know, Jason had a unique opportunity. He had some know, you know, know-how, he had a bit of an engineering background and started tinkering and developed Friction Facts, which was specifically focused on testing lubricant efficiency. <laughs> so set up a rig to, to have a bicycle chain, put a lubricant on it and see how much energy loss there was between drive input and the rear cog. Um, got picked up by some medias, did a lot of testing and kind of created this, you know, this holy grail of test data of all these different lubricants. Uh, being in Colorado, being a skier, he was also familiar with, you know, hot waxing and that kind of stuff and started tinkering with some of the old wives' tales of, you know, wax submersion. And UFO was born out of a paraffin wax blend, a couple other ingredients in there's oils and friction modifiers that allow the chain to hold on to the wax. So the wax doesn't just fall off. You can't just take a birthday candle and put wax on your chain and go win a race. But you need something that's going to keep the, the wax on the metal so it can do its job being very lubricious. Uh, 
And this is what developed into the UFO formula. Um, it continues to go under refinement as we continue to try different tinker with different things. Uh, Jason said that he got over a dozen different uh, vegetable oil ingredients, you know, go down to the, the Whole Foods place and they have all the natural oils that you can cook with and do all this stuff. He basically bought all the ones that they carry to try them because vegetable oils or the natural oils are actually really fantastic uh, with, with being lubricious. Downside is they're sometimes sticky. So sticky means contamination, which means abrasives, then that's not efficient. So you got to strike that balance. What's really lubricious, what works really well, what's not sticky, what's going to last a while. So, you know, it's this kind of, you know, thread the needle to, to get into this. And today's UFO formula, um, Oh, I'll say we we acquired UFO uh, formula from Jason in 2016. Uh, sorry, 2015. 2016, we went ahead and just said, "Hey, Jason, come on over." We we actually acquired Friction Facts as well and brought the brain with the formula. Um, and now we've taken it uh, two more iterative uh, solutions forward, increasing efficiency and increasing the durability. To where now this UFO wax formula, ultra fast optimization wax submersion bath formula uh we can see over 600 kilometers it's more than 300 miles uh, of durability between each coating and as, as as transparently as we can test we still maintain the same test protocols that are transparent and published uh we still test many many products to see comparisons uh and we still come in at the front of the front of the pack uh below four watts uh getting down to the low three watts of energy consumption over that stable 600 kilometers of distance um, to create just the most efficient power transfer method possible in a bicycle chain. Okay. So I got some questions for you on this because this is, this is interesting stuff. Um, I've seen a lot of people talking about this too. It is a, it is a very popular topic right now. And there's a lot of, I, I guess, debate to some extent. There is a, uh, a method called the crock pot method where you clean your chain I think some guys even do it ultrasonically. And then they heat up a, a crock pot with paraffin wax. They drop their chain in it. And then they uh, put that on the bike. What is the main difference between what you're doing and something like a crock pot method? So to be entirely fair to the crock pot method, that was Jason's method when he started. Um, it, it is a widely popular method because it's, you know, it's fairly easy to go through and do, um, and it does get somewhat consistent results. Uh, and I, I like to use the analogy that the crockpot method is, is Betty Crocker. It's you went to the store, you bought a cake in a box, you're responsible for making it something edible. The ceramic speed UFO method, we do it in batches. The, the wax never hardens. It stays liquid. Uh, we break into chains in a very specific and scientific method. They go through a multi-step cleaning process. This is what I refer to as the professional bakery. This is what you want at your wedding. This is the cake you didn't get out of a box. You went and you had someone do it so you know you're going to get a tried and true result. Okay, so the processes are similar. One's just a home, home job and the other one's a professional job. And the waxes, I'm guessing, are much different as well, the actual chemical makeup of the wax. So we're up to 16 ingredients in the UFO formula we use today. And that's well beyond just the uh, the paraffin wax and a couple oils. Okay. And so if you're looking at, you're saying 300, was it 300 miles, 600 or 600 kilometers? Did you say that the chain now lasts? Uh, yeah, the, the wax optimization, 600 kilometers, that's 350-ish miles um, before it is basically worn down to where we're not seeing the consistent efficiency savings any longer. 
you can ride it longer. The chain itself is still great and you can lubricate as desired. But what we're focused on is that, you know, that window of efficiency stability. So how long could you use that and expect to get good efficiency results? And that's that 600 kilometer window. Now, on that 600 kilometers, that's your formula. If you're using the crockpot method, is that a, a shorter distance? Have you been able to increase the duration because of this 16 formula uh, wax? So what it really comes down to is what what target is being measured for that duration. So in, in our process, um, we're not saying that UFO 100% replaces what's done in a crockpot. It's more saying that it, this is that ultra fast keyword, the fast, the efficiency. This is that, you know, the, the best of the best. Uh, there's a lot of people that will use, you know, more standardized paraffin wax. Uh, so not even using one of the off the shelf bags of chain wax. There's a couple on the market now that people are going here, use this wax. It's got some additives. It'll be good for your chain. There's people that will even go even more basic than that, that are like, I'm getting some flour and blah, blah from the store to make my own cake from scratch. Um, but you think about it, you leave out all the little additives that make that professional taste cake taste really good. Your take, cake might not even taste as good as the Betty Crocker. It's just, it's a cake. So this is the, you know, we tried paraffin wax and maybe they put something else in there. Maybe they didn't. Um, and that's where you'll get a wider range of experience. So whether it you know, doesn't stick on very well, it doesn't you know, last uh, uh, 100, 150 miles or so, or maybe you know, they really saturate it and get it on there really, really well. And they're like, yeah, I don't have to do anything to my chain for a thousand miles. That's not addressing the efficiency focus. So as, as mentioned, you know, the, the chain, a UFO chain is still good well after 600 miles. Um, and you still have proper successful lubrication occurring after the 600 kilometers. The difference yeah. is it's now deviated off of that fine line that we're focused on for consistent efficiency. So looking at the low four watts down there, looking at, you know, a highly efficient chain. So I'm saying four watts is what the chain itself consumes at 95 RPMs going right into the chain. What we okay. see is that after that 600K, now it's rising up. Now it's going over five watts. Over time, it's going to head up towards six watts. So we were communicating not a utter lifespan of the chain or the wax itself, but the efficiency level that the UFO formula is providing to achieve what we are claiming of ultra fast optimization. Cool. So, and now just so people understand, I'm just, people are very used to putting grease on their chain and in the cassette area when you're using any type of ufo product you have a very clean very dry cassette and crank and chain that is then doped right you're not doping the cassette or the or the crank it's just the chain and that runs on a very clean very dry uh gear system is that true you got it yep so yeah having okay. a a properly clean drivetrain there's there's free tip number one you want free bike speed clean the bike. <laughs> so, but after that, and this is, we've had people ask like, well, you know, so we have a bottled version of UFO chains It's UFO drip, a uh, similar formula, but because it's dripped on, it doesn't have the same longevity to it. It's uh, 200 kilometers between application. Um, but they ask about, well, do I need to put this on the cassette? Do I need to put it on the chain ring? And Jason Smith through friction facts, both independently, as well as you know, with ceramic speed, did study, did look at, and tried different, you know, coatings and stuff on chain rings and everything. There is a minuscule amount that you have to get down into, you know, the hundredth of a watt to try to be able to notice any differences between a standard, you know, readily available 
bicycle cassette or chain ring that's on the market um, and anything that could possibly be more efficient. So when it's clean, the chain rolls on and off of the, the cassette and the chain rings very efficiently. There's almost no measurable drag there. So you don't got to coat those products as long as the, those pieces, those hard metal pieces stay clean. Focusing on the chain itself, that's where the interface is. So, you know, a chain is, again, it's those sliding faces. That's where friction's concerned. A chain rolling on and rolling off of a cassette or a chain ring, it's lifting right off. As long as it's not stuck there because you have grimy grease that's, you know, built up on there, or you have a worn out chain ring that's shark toothing and it's hooking the chain, as long as you don't have those going on, there is next to no measurable if inefficiency occurring in that interface. It just, rides on and then lifts off that's that's uh really good to know that's that may it's kind of counterintuitive to some extent but when you actually think about it that those interfaces and having essentially no you know watt consumption makes a lot of sense so if somebody if these chains only last for let's say you know 600 kilometers obviously perfect for a race situation if you're training some guys can put up to 400 miles a week on a bike um, I'm guessing you don't want to replace your chain every week. So what do you recommend for a training situation? Is it the UFO drip product? I, I mean, that's definitely top of our, our, you know, our talking points and what we would use uh, and what we promote for sure. Um, and this is where it actually moves into something that's, that's less about just the efficiency of it and just more about the longevity and the care of the hard parts that we just talked about. So one of the side effects and one of the reasons many people really like doing the waxing, the crockpot method, all this sort of stuff, um, that they may not be so concerned about the, the minuscule difference in a couple watts here and there, uh, is that a properly applied dry wax on a chain will stay a lot cleaner. And the number one cause of wearing out bicycle components is uh, abrasion and wear. Dirt. Yep, dirt, you got it. So if your chain stays cleaner, your cassette stays cleaner. Your cassette stays cleaner. It's not getting worn down every time the chain comes across it. So you think about as you're pedaling, you're shifting through these gears. You know, pretty much everyone's experienced that. You know, favorite gear that wore out too quick and makes a little extra noise, and the tooth profile's looking a little different. All of that. We did this testing with you for drip. We did comparison testing, looking at the cleanliness, uh, a drip bottle oil, and then UFO drip or wax formula in the bottle. And when you have that dry wax on there, contamination from the road doesn't stick to it. It just bounces off. So now you have a drivetrain that's staying cleaner as well as running faster. So again, we go back to, you know, free tip number one, a clean bike's a fast bike. Well, a proper chain product helps keep your bike clean, which allows your bike to stay faster longer. Cool. And we, you know, we've seen that in wheels a lot and we've seen a few situations where we get brake tracks that are just extremely worn and they always come from the Pacific Northwest. And so up there, it's wet all the time, and they use a lot of snow or uh, sand in the winter for snow control. And what happens is, especially if it's only on a rim brake bike, but when you are braking, that sand gets picked up, it gets caught on the rim, gets caught in the brake pads because of the water. And as you brake, it's it's essentially sandpaper, and you're just prematurely wearing that rim. But in areas where I live, like in Las Vegas, in the in the Southwest, where it's dry. And there's nothing on the roads. We brake wear down here is almost a non-issue um, for that type of thing. So yes, dirt makes a lot of problems for, for gear for sure. That's uh, and it, and that's definitely the same for the drivetrain. So that's that's cool. Um, talking about drivetrain, you guys have had been showcasing a very interesting, very unique thing over the last 
couple of years, something called the Driven Drivetrain. Um, I'm not sure what that is or what you can tell us about it, but can you give us a little bit of background on Driven and and what that looks like? Certainly, yeah. This uh, th- this has been really fun and you know actually one of the best things about being based in our U.S. office here in Colorado um, compared to our global headquarters and all the product production and everything occurs in Denmark. Um, that you know we acquired Friction Facts in 2016. We got we got this office set up. Uh, we're all working closely together, and Jason always had this concept in mind this this dream that he wanted to create the one percent drivetrain, meaning it consumes one percent or less of energy input um, to go through. So at you know two hundred fifty watts, it means it's going to take less than two and a half watts uh, of energy consumption between pedal and tire. Um, and when we you know, we're talking about chains and how you know even our fast chain, we're talking low fours, high three watts. Like, so we're already, you know, already out of the game, you know, doesn't have to include bottom bracket or pulleys or wheel bearings right there alone. You know, the chain itself uh, was a pretty high hurdle Uh, and, you know, looking at chain design, lubricants, you know, how fast can we make a lubricant, all these pieces, you know, Jason had this in mind. He wanted, you know, he dreamed of the 1% drivetrain and we, you know, being here in Boulder, Colorado, um, we actually had some relations with uh, the CU engineering department and teamed up with them in 2017 uh, for a senior engineering project. So uh, a number of companies, generally local companies, will present these challenges, things that you want a fresh perspective on. You want maybe somebody that's not in the industry, you know, uh, and really understands how how bicycle drivetrains work. You want someone to come at it with a fresh perspective. And so you know, we challenge these guys. Here's a bicycle. How how would you make the drivetrain more efficient? And we have a lot of data. You know, we understand bottom bracket. We understand the, the, the rear wheel, the derailleur, the chain. So we had a lot of knowledge already. Uh, and we didn't want to put much boundary on it. We told them, you know, you got a bicycle with a crank and a rear wheel. You know, make it as efficient as possible. And so we, we got some data sets where they knew what to work on. And a modern bicycle is, you know, it can get to 97 to 98% efficient but it still leaves that last little bit. And this is about pushing the boundary. What, what is next? Uh, you know, you look at internal gear hubs, you know, just the, the lubricants that are in there, the meshing of the gears, they're inherently inefficient. A traditional bicycle drivetrain is more efficient than an internal geared hub. Uh, we look at belt drive. Well, a belt drive requires tension. Uh, tension is actually something we didn't touch on, but plays a pretty big part in chain efficiency. If you pull those metal links really hard together, they, they're going to bind more, so they're not going to yep. bend as easily. So, you know, that tension, same thing that's required in a belt drive to keep it from slipping, that, you know, is the enemy of efficiency. So, you know, they're looking at all these pieces, and what they were able to come up with uh, was actually a, a modernization of the the drive shaft. So a traditional drive shaft, you know, having, a, you know, geared mesh and pinion to pass, uh, you know, pass the energy from, you know, first point to third point, uh, they, you know, they came up with this concept that what if you had a rolling interface in between your drive gear and the pinion and then the rear pinion and uh, you know the rear gear cluster for the wheel and started working and testing on it. And they were able to show a proof of concept that this could actually be more efficient than a traditional bicycle chain uh, starting in a single speed orientation. And the unique piece is they didn't have to then go to something like a derailleur with springs to allow multiple gears. So the same orientation in a single speed, if they could just get that rear pinion to move, you know, up and down the cassette cluster going laterally, then you could have multiple gears without the need for the derailleur and the springs and everything enhanced with that. 
So the, the driven drivetrain concept is all about removing the traditional drivetrain as we see it and moving to a drive shaft that features uh, in the current iteration, it's uh, nine bearings in the front. Uh, it was 12 bearings in the rear on a spinning drive shaft. Uh, and that is what meshed the, the bearings would actually roll in and out of the tooth profiles for the crank and the cassette in the rear. And this was wow. this was the links required to get that next 1%. So the fastest drivetrain that we tested, um, and again, you know, we try to use the most transparent Seth protocols that Jason Smith came up with at Friction Facts. We still have them posted. We still share these openly uh, so people can can challenge and recreate and you know test as they see uh, you know, as transparently as we can. Uh, the fastest drivetrain that we've ever tested and developed would be a ceramic speed drivetrain with an OSPW and a UFO chain. So just maximizing the efficiency, tip to tail, and we're getting about 98.4. And we were able to take that, I believe it's 99.2 with driven. So not even wow. a full percent forward. It was it was everything that we had to go through to get that last little bit. And yet, you know, you can get a bigger gain from a stock drivetrain to a fully optimized ceramic speed drivetrain than you could by going this last little bit. And the coolest part is all the interest outside of racing that it's developed. And this is what I love about innovation and the, the time spent focusing on these challenges is that it may answer a problem that people didn't think to ask because you were focused on something else. Uh, people have come up, you know, talking about commuter bikes and different applications that you get rid of the chain, you, you, you know, put these parts inside, you know, if you can, you know, solve this unique aspect of not having the chain, you know, it's very easy to put a shield over, um, you know, to have it all enclosed. So it keeps the contamination away. Now, now you start revolutionizing different aspects of what we, we just thought were standardized. And so yeah. it's, it's been a lot of fun. Um, we actually did back-to-back -back senior engineering problems with CU. Um, the first year they came up with Driven. The second year, we challenged them to, to solve the shifting. How do they put the electronics, the mechanism inside the shaft? How do they actuate stepping from gear to gear? Um, it's, uh, it actually took something that I refer to as a, uh, a torque decoupler. So two of the, uh, yep. the, the, uh, the bearings on the rear pinion can, can actually come away from alignment and are soft with a spring action. So that way they can remesh with the next gear before going into power transfer. Um, so re removing that that torque application, moving it over, and then stepping into the next gear, so that way you can shift up and down into gears. Um, we got wireless shifting uh, into the spindle, battery, shift mechanism, everything in place. Uh, it it was, you know, really was a really amazing you know, two years with, uh, with that project. Uh, and it's still undergoing development with interest and investment to, to see what can come of it. Um, and see what, you know, what could be the next, uh, next step for driven. Well, I saw it at Kona last year and I saw it, uh, a full demo and it is definitely a very cool, very unique, uh, approach. I'd love to see it on a bike personally. I mean, I would, I'd be all about it. I just think that stuff's really neat. So, um, yeah, I hope you guys actually produce that and come out with that. That would be really, that would be really great. Um, some general questions. If somebody wants to get ceramic speed products installed on their bike, what is the best way for them to, to do that? Do they have, do you have like a, a, a dealer list that's, you know, really familiar and good with your products or is it something they can do at a standard bike shop? So ideally, uh, we approach it with support material and processes that, you know, we believe should be industry-wide. Um, 
that, that any shop should be able to successfully walk this through. Uh, we make sure to have both PDF instructions as well as video walkthroughs for all of our products uh, to have the support material there. It's one of the things I focus on uh, in my daily desk time um, is technical and education support, uh, both you know, B2B for, for our shops as well as B2C to end consumers. We do have a uh, authorized retailer list, as we call it. Um, so these are shops that have committed working with Ceramic Speed. They have experience with Ceramic Speed, uh, and they would be you know, the shops that would likely be more readily available, of not just having product on hand, but being familiar for any troubleshooting, for the setup, all that kind of stuff to get uh, get all the pieces put into place. But we try to we we try to keep it uh, you know uh, as as approachable as possible um, for you know any rider looking to maximize their efficiency on the bike. Awesome. And you guys always have a huge pop-up event at Kona every year. Obviously this year, unfortunately, Kona is not going to, not going to happen. Hopefully maybe in February. Do you have pop-up events at other places throughout the year or is it just sort of a Kona thing? Um, Kona is the biggest and most consistent for us. So when I started in 2015, um, I was the the second employee hired for what we called Ceramic Speed Americas, uh, focused just North and South America. Um, Through 2016, Uh, Myself and uh, another colleague, we went to a number of full distance and half distance Ironman events. Um, You're really raising awareness, talking to to people, you know, bringing the bar up of the awareness. Um, But one thing we noticed is we can never underestimate the value of our retailer network of getting people things that they want on their schedule rather than waiting for an event. Um, So we, we had to dial back down a little bit the, you know, the constant travel of being at all the events so that way we can ensure that we supported our, uh, our retail partners as best as possible um and, and you know make sure that you know we were doing a good job for for everyone that wanted to engage with ceramic speed not just uh, triathletes at these events or you know other athletes at other events we do still you know want to get out to initial events we had a number of gravel events on the calendar this year the the off-road segment is really growing um the, the efficiency applications are just as true uh, there. And for many athletes, it's more true when it's a longer event. So, uh, you know, Dirty Kansas, 200 miles, uh, or even, you know, uh, Land Run 100, uh, you know, the uh, Mid-South gravel event. You know, there, there's all these, you know, longer days. Um, we wanted to be up at uh, the event in, uh, in Colorado Springs. Um, the, the gravel race they started up there last year, uh, the, or sorry, the Steamboat Springs event. Um, so we got a number of events on the calendar. We we anxiously await their their return, and when we can get back out there and see everybody, um, we're just giving a little more diversity to what events we get to 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 reach all all cyclists. Cool, and you're absolutely right. The gravel stuff, as far as a speed um, improvement, there is definitely as important as it is on the road. We've seen with our new uh, aero gravel wheels that the benefit of changing a wheel on the road from a standard OE wheel to a, uh, to an aero wheel is the same gain that you see when you do the same thing on a gravel wheel, even with a larger, much more knobbier tire. So yeah, the, the, the benefits to improve all your gear from a speed perspective, especially over the long distance races, like you're saying are important, uh, even in gravel. So that's, that's good to know that as well. Um, our final question is the what point question. I've kind of been doing some math along here, but let's assume that we're going to make every single ceramic speed upgrade all the way from the bottom bracket, all the way back down to the rear wheel. So we're going to change the bottom bracket. We're going to have a UFO chain. We're going to put the oversized, 
um, pulley wheel system on there. We're going to upgrade our wheel bearings. How many watts are we going to save a cyclist at, considering an a 300-watt FTP? Um, well, 300 watts actually uh, is fantastic for us. We do so much of our own testing. Uh, 95 watts, or sorry, 95 RPM, 250 watts is our is our average benchmarks. Um, the cool thing about drivetrain enhancements is that as you put more energy into them, they become more critical. Um, they they consume more energy when you're putting more loading in there. So at, at 250 watts, we we communicate 10 to 16 watts, and that uh, that accounts for a range of bearing sizes used in different hubs uh, that covers the range of a uh, you know, BB30 bearing or a Shimano bearing being slightly different size with different numbers of balls, uh, and then what stock derailleur you started with. We increase that up to 300 watts. That's going to be anywhere from 12 to closer to 20 watts. Uh, again, with the deviations for componentry, um, we try to be clear and transparent in our, uh, you know, in our claims and what we're expecting and what we anticipate uh, savings can be. Um, but yeah, as you increase that input, uh, that, you know, that actually works, uh, works in our favor. We like that for numbers. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah you're going to be looking, uh, 12 plus Watts, uh, for a full drivetrain there. That is, that is a big gain. You know, I always say every year the the fastest athletes at Kona are the smartest athletes and every bike that I see that is somebody who is a fast athlete has pretty much everything ceramic speed on it. So that that 10 or 12 to 20 watts is definitely a very important factor and and definitely contributes to them uh coming in first and you know being on the podium so thanks for being on the show today paul we really appreciate your time um and we look forward to seeing at an event when they open back up definitely john it's been been a lot of fun i appreciate uh having a chance to come on with you thanks for listening to faster if you enjoyed this episode please share it leave a review or teach a friend what you learned today for more great episodes on getting faster, subscribe to this podcast. While you're on your next ride, be kind to one another and ride safe.